and we're going to be focusing on the idea of where traditions come from. That's the focus of our message today. And so what I wanted to do is just real quick is how many of you have traditions in your family or just personal traditions that you guys do? What are some of those traditions? Keep your hands raised if you're, if you're willing to share what one of your traditions are. Anybody? Everybody's like, no, mine are too private. We watch It's a Wonderful Life on Christmas Eve. Okay, watching It's a Wonderful Life on Christmas Eve. That's awesome. What other traditions do you guys have? Past five years of uh, living the sober life, coming into every year on New Year's sober 100%. Okay, that's awesome. I am just running today. I know, I see other hands. I know, Sam. I'm just taking the long way. The tradition where they, they keep it, they have a shoe out of their room and they put money in it. It's like a, something Spanish. Oh, okay. We did it for a little while. It was awesome. Okay, cool. Um, I don't remember what it's called, though. Okay. I'm sure someone knows what I'm talking about here. I don't know, but I will be happy to start putting my shoes outside of my door if somebody wants to put money in that as well. Uh, every one of our birthdays, Lisa Coley, tonight's, um, in the morning, it's a red plate that says God loves you and a donut. And then a birthday song by DJ Bobo. Look it up. Okay. <laughs> nice. All right, one more. Okay, Miriam, I'm going to go to you. Making tamales, of course. Uh, yeah. ma- for, for, for Christmas. I was like, making tamales. She didn't even give reference because we live in New Mexico. That could just be for any time, right? So making tamales, it's a tradition. Everybody should do it. Well, traditions are amazing things. Some of our traditions are, are fun. Some of them are silly. How many of you are, are huge, you know, sports fans? How many of you are huge sports fans? Okay, I'm a huge sports fan. There are some traditions that people have with, that would probably border on the line of superstition. Wade Boggs would eat chicken. Lots of different ways, but he would eat chicken before he would have a game. It would only be chicken. He couldn't eat beef. He wouldn't eat anything else. It's kind of the superstitious thing that he would do, right? Uh, Dude Perfect had this thing about the Super Bowl party, and, and they started talking about superstitions. And then the first one was, you were in the bathroom last time they scored a touchdown. And so he goes running back into the bathroom to sit on the bathroom like, you hear, Whoa, and he's in the bathroom going, yes. You know, some of our traditions and our, our, our silly superstitions that we do, they can be for fun things, right? They, they can be meaningful. And I love what Brandon had shared, you know, coming in the last five years sober. You know, this is, this is something I do every year. Um, God has traditions too. And that's really what stood out to me concerning this passage of Scripture because this passage that we looked at was the deliverance of Israel from the people of Egypt. This is the finality of all of that taking place. We see the death of the firstborn that takes place, where Pharaoh finally says, you, your people, everybody get out. And beyond that, after he thinks about it a little while and God hardens his heart again, he starts chasing after them and God divides the Red Sea and the people of Israel walk across it on dry land. And he causes the sea to close up on Pharaoh's army. And never again 
did that generation have to worry about Egypt because God had won this battle for them and delivered them from slavery as he had promised. We see the culmination of that. And yet, through these verses of Scripture, these four chapters, nearly four chapters that we read this week, most of what we read wasn't about his deliverance. It was about the preparation for his deliverance. That God was talking about what he was going to do. He hadn't done it yet. He was going to do this. And as a result, these were things that the people of Israel needed to remember. Therefore, God established traditions, ordinances, celebrations, commands for the people of Israel to celebrate in perpetuity. That's just a fancy word, means generationally, right? And so let's take a look at some of these scriptures that we read this past week, and I'm just going to read them kind of as a whole. So we're going to kind of blow through them, but there's a lot here, because I want you guys this happened. So in Exodus verse 1 to 12, it says this, starting in verse 1. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in Egypt, this month is to be for you the first month, the first month of your year. Tell the whole community of Israel that on the 10th day of this month, each man is to take a lamb for his family, one for each household. If any household is too small for a whole lamb, they must share one with their nearest neighbor, having taken into account the number of people there are. You are determined the amount of lamb in need of a... Needed in accordance with what each person will eat. The animals you choose must be a year old, males without defect, and you must take them from the sheep or the goats. Take care of them until the 14th day of the month, when all the people of the community of Israel must slaughter them at twilight. And then they're to take some of the blood and put it on the sides and tops of the door frames of the houses where they eat the lambs. That same night, they're to eat meat roasted over the fire along with bitter herbs and bread made without yeast. Do not eat the meat raw or cooked in water, but roasted over the fire, head, legs, and inner parts. Do not leave any of it till morning. If some some is left till morning, you must burn it. This is how you're to eat it, with your cloak tucked into your belt, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand. Eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. On that same night, I will pass through Egypt and strike down every firstborn, both men and animals. And I will bring judgment on all the gods of Egypt. I am the Lord. The blood will be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. No destructive plague will touch you when I strike Egypt. This is a day you are to commemorate. For the generations to come, you shall celebrate it as a festival to the Lord, a lasting ordinance. For seven days, you are to eat bread made without yeast. On the first day, remove the yeast from your houses. For whoever eats anything with yeast in it, from the first day through the seventh, must be cut off from Israel. On the first day, hold a sacred assembly. And another one on the seventh, seventh day. Do no work on all of these days except to prepare food for everyone to eat. That is all you may do. 
Celebrate the feast of unleavened bread because it was on this very day that I brought your divisions out of Egypt. Celebrate this day as a lasting ordinance for the generations to come. In the first month, you were to eat bread made without geese from evening of the 14th day until the evening of the 21st day. For seven days, no yeast is to be found in your houses. And whoever eats anything with yeast in it must be cut off from the community of Israel, whether he is alien or native born. Eat nothing made with yeast. Wherever you live, you must eat unleavened bread. And Moses summoned all the elders of Israel and said to them, Go at once and select the animals for your families and slaughter the Passover lamb and take a bunch of hyssop, dip it in the blood of the basin and put some of the blood on the top and on both sides of the doorframe. Not one of you shall go out the door of his house until morning. When the Lord goes through the land to strike down the Egyptians... He will see the blood on the top and on the sides of the doorframe and will pass over that doorway and he will not prevent the destroyer to enter your houses and strike you down. Obey these instructions as a lasting ordinance for you and your descendants. When you enter the land that the Lord will give you as promise, observe this ceremony. And when your children ask you, what does this ceremony mean to you? Then tell them it is the Passover sacrifice to the Lord who passed over the houses of the Israelites in Egypt and spared our homes when he struck down the Egyptians. Then the people bowed down and worshipped, and the Israelites did just what the Lord commanded Moses and Aaron. So we see this. This is preparation of what's going to happen. He hasn't delivered them yet. That, that casting out is yet to happen. And now we have the Passover that's coming forth. And it's just not a matter of God saying, hey, this Passover is going to happen. Do these things. He t- makes a point to say, don't just do these things now. This is to be a celebration that you are to continue to do. You and the future generations. So that they will ask, why are we doing these things? So that you'll remember what the Lord has done how he took you out of Egypt and brought you into this place. And he does this ahead of time. And then, of course, the Passover takes place, and we see that the death angel comes and passes over the people of Israel, and they're driven out by Pharaoh. And immediately after that, when that happens, in Exodus 13, while they are walking their way out, God gives further instructions. And it says this, starting in verse 1. It says, the Lord said to Moses, consecrate to me every firstborn male. The first offspring of every womb among the Israelites belongs to me, whether man or animal. And then Moses said to the people, commemorate this day, the day you came out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery, because the Lord brought you out of it with a mighty hand. Eat nothing containing yeast. Today, in the month of Abib, you are leaving. When the Lord brings you into the land of the Canaanite, Hittites, Amorites, Hivites, and Jebusites, the land that he swore to your forefathers to give you, a land flowing with milk and honey, you are to observe the ceremony in this month. For seven days eat bread made without yeast, and on the seventh day hold a festival to the Lord. Eat unleavened bread during those seven days. Nothing with yeast in it is to be seen among you, nor shall any yeast be seen anywhere within your borders. On that day, tell your son... I do this because of what the Lord did for me when I came out of Egypt. This observance will be for you like a sign on your head and a reminder on your forehead that the law of the Lord is to be on your lips. For the Lord brought you out of Egypt with his mighty hand. You must keep this ordinance at the appointed time year after year. 
After the Lord brings you into the land of the Canaanites and gives it to you, as he promised on oath to you and your forefathers, you are to give over to the Lord the first offspring of every womb. All the firstborn males of your livestock belong to the Lord. Redeem them with a lamb, every firstborn donkey. But if you do not redeem it, break its neck. Redeem every firstborn among your sons. In days to come when your son asks you, what does this mean? Say to him with a mighty hand, the Lord brought us out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. And when Pharaoh stubbornly refused to let us go, the Lord killed every firstborn in Egypt, both man and animal. This is why I sacrifice to the Lord the first male offspring of every womb and redeem each of my firstborn sons. And it will be like a sign on your hand and a symbol on your forehead that the Lord brought us out of Egypt with his mighty hand. And so God establishes this tradition before deliverance has been given. Hasn't been actualized, but he says, I'm going to do this. And when I do, as I'm having you do these things in accordance to my will, it is so that future generations will know by these actions, it will remind you of the great deliverance that God has given the people of Israel. It's important to note, remember we talked about how this is going from a personal religious experience that that the forefathers, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob had had, to now we're getting more formalized. God is making these traditions and he's doing so for one reason, that they might not forget the great deeds that God has done. These things that are celebrated are to be remembered. And we have the same thing that happens today. As a matter of fact, when we fast forward to the New Testament and we go into Luke and we look at the establishment of the Last Supper, we see the same pattern, right? Jesus establishes something before the event takes place in much the same way. So, verse 7, chapter 22 of Luke That's where we'll begin. It says, then came the day of unleavened bread. This very celebration that we're talking about with Passover, right? On which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. And Jesus sent Peter and John saying, go and make preparations for us to eat the Passover. Where do you want us to prepare it, they asked. And he replied, as you enter into the city, a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him to the house that he enters and say to the owner of the house, the teacher asked, where is the guest room? Where may I eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room, all furnished. Make preparations there. They left and found things just as Jesus had told them. So they prepared the Passover. And when the hour came, Jesus and his apostles reclined at the table. And he said to them, I've eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat again until it finds its fulfillment in the kingdom of God. And after taking the cup, he gave thanks and said, take this and divide it among you. For I tell you, you I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took the bread and gave thanks and broke it and gave it to them. He said, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, after the supper, he took the cup saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. You have to understand, Jesus hasn't died yet. When he gave this ordinance, when he gave this lasting sacrament of the deliverance of us, just like he did for the deliverance of the people of Egypt, 
were the people of Israel from Egypt. You know what he did? God said, I'm going to give you these lasting ordinances, these festivals. You know why? So that you will celebrate and not forget by the mighty hand of God. He has brought you out of uh, out of Egypt by his mighty hand that you might serve him and follow him all the days of your life. And it's the same reason that we do those same things here today. We celebrate communion in our church every single week. You know why? Because we want to remember what Jesus has delivered us from. You and me. Because we were sinners in need of a Savior. And He died for you and me. And it's something that we are told to do in remembrance of Him. So we don't forget what He's done for us. As a matter of fact, the other sacrament that that was given by Jesus that he did beforehand is baptism. And we can read a little bit more about baptism in Romans chapter 6. But Jesus had a different baptism than that of John the Baptist. And his disciples were baptizing. And then after he had died and rose again, we get this explanation of what baptism is all about. Chapter 6, starting in verse 1 of Romans, it says, What shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? By no means. We died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? Or don't you know that all of us who are baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. If we've been united with him like this in his death, we will certainly also be united with him in his resurrection. For we know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin because anyone who has died has been freed from sin. And now if we've died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. And we know that since Christ was raised from the dead, he cannot die again. Death no longer has any mastery over him. The death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. In the same way, count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal bodies so that you obey its evil desires. Do not offer the parts of your body to sin as instruments of wickedness, but rather offer yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life. And offer the parts of your body to him as instruments of righteousness. For sin shall not be your master because you are not under law, but under grace. Do you see the same pattern here in the New Testament as we see in the Old Testament? Before this great deliverance, God has given them these ordinances, these festivals, this time. Why? To celebrate the great things that God has done, that he delivered the people of Israel. For what reason? So that they would tell the next generation and that next generation would put their trust in him. All of these things were added for that reason. It's why we do communion. It's why we celebrate baptism. And when we have baptisms here, it's an awesome thing. Don't you guys agree? I love seeing baptisms here. But baptisms are a reminder for you and me of what Jesus has done for us. It's a reminder for the person who's being baptized of what they're committing to by being buried, their self going under the water, dying to self, and being risen again, recognizing Jesus as their deliverer. And what's so sad is that one of the traditions 
that has been built up is that of us meeting on the Lord's Day. You can trace it back to the early church. And the Lord's Day being Sunday. You know why it's Sunday and not the Sabbath day? Sabbath is Saturday. Lord's Day is Sunday because it's the day that Jesus resurrected. Every single Sunday we come together, you realize we're celebrating the resurrection of Christ. And yet, what we've seen more and more in our culture is an abandonment of us coming together on Sundays. And it doesn't just affect our remembrance of the things that Jesus has done. It affects everything in our lives that Jesus has established. COVID told us, at least our culture tried to tell us, that this time together was unnecessary, not essential. Churches, as a result, lost 30 to 50% of their members on average during this time. Because afterwards, people just didn't come back. Our congregation has forever changed as a result of that. And even to this day, there are some who have never come back. And the question comes down to, when we take away the witness of God that this this place brings, we take away the sacraments of communion on a weekly basis, the baptisms that we see, the meeting of every Lord's Day, the preaching of the Word of God, and somehow we think we're going to get stronger in our faith, Somehow we don't think that that will bleed into other areas of our life. I want to read two long quotes from two different, uh, two different sources here. One is uh, a quote from an article called Common Good Men by Nancy Piercy. It's excerpted, 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 excerpted. It's taken... It's taken from an article that she wrote based upon a, a book that she'll have coming out uh, in June. And this is what it reads toward the end of this very long article that I really encourage you guys, if you get a chance to read it, please do, okay? It, it'll take you a while to read it. I'm just telling you that right now. But it's amazing to see that. But the conclusion toward the end of it, it says this. In recent decades, psychologists and sociologists have been conducting research on Christian couples. Surprisingly, they have found that evangelical family men who attend church regularly are the most loving husbands and the most engaged fathers. Because the term evangelical has become politicized, I want to clarify that I'm using the term in its theological sense to mean Christians who are theologically conservative. That's us, people. You can do that again. That was good. (laughs) As fathers, evangelical men are the most likely to express affection and praise their children. They're most likely to spend time in activities with them, like playing with them, reading to them, and taking them to soccer practice. They also rate highest in practicing discipline, such as supervising homework, enforcing bedtime, setting limits on screen time. Similarly, the wives of evangelical family men are the most likely to say their husbands express affection and understanding. 
They rank highest in terms of saying that they feel loved and appreciated by their husbands. These couples are less likely to divorce, and they have the lowest rates of domestic violence of any group in the United States. Sociologist Brad Wilcox of the University of Virginia and one of the nation's top marriage researchers wrote an article in the New York Times where he said it turns out that the happiest of all wives in America are religious conservatives. Fully 73% of wives who hold conservative gender values and attend religious services regularly with their husbands have high quality marriages. Did you catch that? Let me repeat it. The happiest of all wives in America are religious conservatives who hold conservative gender values and are married to committed church-going husbands. These findings are surprising even to many Christians. We've all heard the claim that Christians are just as likely to divorce as non-Christians. In fact, it is one of the most frequently quoted statistics by church leaders today. How does that square with the sociological facts just cited? Researchers went back to the data and divided the evangelical men into two groups. Those who attend church regularly versus those who are only nominal Christians. In a survey, nominal men might check off the Baptist box because of their family and cultural background, even if they attend church rarely, if at all. The difference between these groups are stunning. Nominal evangelicals are the least engaged with their children. Their wives report the lowest level of happiness, and they're more likely to divorce. But here's the real stunner. Whereas committed church-going couples report the lowest rate of domestic violence of any group, nominals report the highest rate of any group, even higher than secular couples. Wilcox summarizes his findings in Christianity Today, writing, The most violent husbands in America are nominal evangelical Protestants who attend church infrequently or not at all. It seems that many nominal men hang around the fringes of the Christian world just enough to hear the language of headship and not in submission, but not enough to learn the biblical meaning of those terms. It's like skimming the news headlines without reading the actual stories. They cherry pick verses from the Bible and read them through a grid of male superiority and entitlement and have absorbed from the secular guy code. And then they manipulate the scripture to justify their abusive behavior. Why is attending church so important? Church going exposes men to messages telling them the family was created by God. It's not some evolutionary accident. Church tells men that they're accountable, accountable before God for how they treat their family. Let's face it, Wilcox says, church is one of the few institutions in the United States where men encounter other men who are interested in talking about fatherhood and marriage and interested in also practicing what they hear preached. He goes on, you don't often find it at work. You don't find it, you don't often find it in the sports stadium. You don't find it in the local tavern, but in church, what you will find is a message, an ethos that is family focused and gives men motivations to attend to their families. See, when you cut out that which God uses to draw you back to himself, you lose more than just, oh, I hear the same message every single week. You miss out on the proclamation of the gospel that changes our lives from the inside out. That changes everything. Because who established marriage? God did. 
Who established the sexual ethic that we are supposed to abide by? God did. Who provided the way in which we're supposed to raise our children? God did. And when you and I turn around and say we can replace this time with something else, that something else takes hold in our children's lives. And this is why when we look back in Exodus and we look at what God is trying to establish, we're going to see that this ritual, and that's what it is, it's ritual. We're doing this on a yearly basis. The ritual is to bring remembrance and hopefully relationship with God that has saved them and delivered the people of Israel. In the same way, why are we doing the things that we do here? Why do we take communion? Why do we have the baptism? Why are we here on every Sunday that we should be here? Why? So that we can be reminded again and again of the gospel. And understand this, the ritual of coming here doesn't make you a Christian. But it does bring to remembrance every single week what God has done and the responsibilities on the believer in Christ of what it means to love God through obedience. Don't you think that's going to make a difference? And yet we're so easy to cut this time out. If our vacation is out, and we get back on Monday, we make sure we take every single moment of that vacation, right? Sunday becomes a travel day, and we no longer meet with the body of believers. We have visitors who come into town, and we say, you know what, I'm not going to be there this week at church. You know why? Because I've got my mom, and they're not really religious, but they're going to be here in, in town, so I'm going to spend my time with them. And we abandon that ritual. We have these sporting events that come up all the time on Sundays, and more and more frequently. It wasn't like this 10 years ago. I'm telling you guys, I've been a youth pastor this whole time. It's getting more frequent. It is a ploy of Satan. I'm just going to tell you why. Because it pulls you out of a place where you're going to be hearing again and again and again the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And your kids are going to be replacing that with what? We have our late sporting events on Saturday night. And, you know, early Sunday morning. It's just hard for us to make it. Do you see what we're replacing The message of Christ being preached to us. The gospel of the good news of Jesus Christ to the next generation, to our families, to our friends, to everybody around us. We're saying it's not that important. And we deny ourselves that message again and again and then that message again and again and again. And we think that it would do no good if they were here. What do you think would be a better testimony? Family comes into town. Hey, we're going to be there Sunday. You know what? Why don't you just spend the day with us? We can go out and eat breakfast. I'll tell you what. We'll go out extra early for breakfast. And why don't you come to church with me? Oh, we don't feel like going to church. Well, that's fine. But we're going to go to church. You know why? Because this is my brother. This this is my family right here. This is a family of God. Redeemed by the grace of Jesus Christ through the blood of the Lamb. Together. When we come in community, we stand as a witness to those who don't think that this is very important. And we have to make it important. So I could get back on Monday, but I'm going to get back a day early. You know why? Because I can be with my people. 
I'm going to be out on vacation, but you know what? I'm going to seek out a Bible-believing church. You know why? Because I want to be with the family of God. There's a testimony that is there of remembrance. And the ritual does not save you, but it brings to remembrance what Jesus has done to deliver us in the same way that he's talking about delivering the people of Israel from Egypt. And the more we ignore that message in our life, the less impact it's going to have upon us. I want to read another lengthy quote. I'm into lengthy quotes today. It's a book that the youth group Young Men will be doing in a few weeks. It's Thoughts for Young Men by J.C. Ryle. J.C. Ryle was a preacher back in the 1800s, but what he writes could have been written today as um, Roger so aptly put a little bit earlier, there's nothing new under the sun. For another thing, be diligent in the use of all public means of grace. And by this, he's talking about the ritualistic going to church. Be regular in going to the house of God whenever it's open for prayer and preaching, and it is in your power to attend. Be regular in keeping the Lord's holy day and determine that God's day out of the seven shall henceforth always be given to its rightful owner. I would not leave any false impression on your minds. Do not go away and say, I told you that keeping your church made up the whole of religion. I tell you no such thing. In other words, going to church ain't going to save you. I have no wish to see you grow up, grow up formalists and Pharisees. If you think the mere carrying your body to a certain house at certain times on a certain day of the week will make you a Christian and prepare you to meet God, I tell you flatly that you are miserably deceived. All services without heart service are unprofitable and vain. They are only true worshipers who worship God in spirit and in truth. The Father seeks such to worship him. John 4.23 but the means of grace are not to be despised because they are not saviors. Gold is not food. You cannot eat it, but you would not therefore say it's useless and throw it away. Your soul's eternal well-doing most certainly does not depend upon means of grace, like going to church, but it is no less certain that without them, as a general rule, your soul will not do well. God might take all who are saved to heaven in a chariot of fire as he did Elijah, but he does not do so. He might teach them all by visions and dreams and miraculous interpositions without requiring them to read or think for themselves, but he does not do so. And why not? Because he is a God that works by means, and it is his law and will in that all man's dealings with him means shall be used. None but the fool or enthusiast would think of building a house without ladders and scaffolding. And just so, no wise man will despise means. I dwell more on this point because Satan will try hard to fill your minds with arguments against means. He will draw your attention to the numbers of persons who use them and are no better for the using. See there, he will whisper. Do you not observe those who go to church are no better than those who stay away? But do not let this move you. It is never fair to argue against a thing because it's improperly used. It doesn't follow that a means of grace can do no good because many attend on them and get no good from them. Medicine is not to be despised because many take it and do not recover their health. No man would think of giving up eating and drinking because others choose to eat and drink improperly and so make themselves ill. The value of means of grace, like other things, depends in great measure on the manner and spirit in which we use them. 
I dwell on this point too because of the strong anxiety I feel that every young man should regularly hear the preaching of Christ's gospel. I cannot tell you how important I think this is, but God, by God's blessing, the ministry of the gospel might be the means of converting your soul, of leading you into a saving knowledge of Christ, of making you a child of God in deed and in truth. This would be cause for eternal thankfulness indeed. This would be an event over which the angels would rejoice. But even if this were not the case, there's a restraining power and influence in the ministry of the gospel under which I earnestly desire every young man to be brought. There are thousands whom it keeps back from evil, though it has not yet turned them unto God. It has made them far better members of society, though it has not yet made them true Christians. There is a certain kind of mysterious power in the faithful preaching of the gospel, which tells insensibly on the multitudes who listen to it without receiving it into their hearts. To hear sin cried down, And holiness cried up to hear Christ exalted and the works of the devil denounced. To hear the kingdom of heaven and its blessedness described and the world and its emptiness exposed. To hear week after week, Sunday after Sunday, is seldom without good effect to the soul. It makes far harder afterwards to run into any excess of riot and plethagrage. I can't say that word. I, I practiced with Shannon beforehand. I failed. All right. It's, it acts as a wholesome check upon a man's heart. This, I believe, is one way which that promise of God is made good. My word shall not return to me void, Isaiah fifty-five eleven. There's much truth in that strong saying of, of Whitfield. The gospel keeps many a one from the gall and the gallows if it does not keep him from hell. I don't know about you. I think the world would be a lot better if they did go to church regularly. What do you think? But if you really believe that, shouldn't you be here every week? If you really believe that the preaching of the gospel is not without effect for yourself, for your family, for others around you, to to quicken our hearts to the things of God, then shouldn't you and I be here every opportunity that we can and stop making excuses to sleep in? Stop making excuses that it was a long night last night. Stop making other events more important than this event right here, which we're reminded of the great salvation of our souls to Jesus Christ. See, this is what we get Israel later on in trouble because as God establishes these things, As we read, the worst part is not denying them altogether. The worst part is giving a form of acceptance to them, but not caring a thing about them. That's what we see worked out. The worst of the people are not not necessarily the atheists that are out there. It's the ones who say they're Christians, but don't follow through. Who use and abuse the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ to do whatever it is that they want to do rather than through love and obedience, submit themselves to the one who bought them with his blood. But you and I have to be reminded week after week. I forget. I don't know about you guys. I forget. I need to be reminded. I need submission. I need to be put back in the place that God has desired me to be in submission to Jesus Christ for the sake of the gospel of Jesus Christ, for the sake of my family, 
of my wife, my marriage, my children, raising them up in the way that they should go. It starts with me. It starts with all of you. You should be here every week. I know sickness happens. And I know maybe some vacations are two weeks long and not one week long. And I get that. I'm not worried about that. But you and I should sacrifice to be here every single week. Because we know the gospel is proclaimed here. And we'll have a far greater witness being in this place every single Sunday than we will avoiding this place and the message that is proclaimed from this pulpit. Do stand with me. This isn't a guilt trip. It really isn't. I know it may feel like one, but it's not. It's the recognition that this, the gospel of Jesus Christ and the proclamation of this gospel and the reminder of it that come through the sacraments that we celebrate every single week is more important than the worldly things that are around us. And we lose sight of that. I forget. And I know if I forget, I'm not the only one. My encouragement to you is that you would make that commitment today. If you'd forgotten and you've got other things that are going on during this time, it may cost you something to make this time a priority. But recognize that when it costs you something, you're actually proclaiming the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Don't miss out on Sunday because somebody's visiting you. Bring them here. Let them hear the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And if they won't go with you, make sure that you say, I'm going. This is where my family is. I need those reminders. You'll do much better witnessing to the goodness of the gospel of Jesus Christ to your family by being here, being reminded of what you should be doing with your family when they're around you than if you ignore that call. Let's start making this time as important as the world wants to make all the other times. pray together. God, I want to thank you. I thank you for this time, this celebration, these graduates who are here that we get to celebrate and encourage them to make disciples. I thank you for every single person who is here on the Lord's day because we celebrate the resurrection of Jesus Christ every single Sunday. I thank you for the communion that we celebrate every week that proclaims your death until you come. God, help us not to expunge this witness from our lives for petty, meaningless things that do not bring life nor remind us of the great deliverance that you have done through Jesus Christ. May we commit this day to make this time important, not because it saves but the ritual brings to remembrance and the remembrance gives us the opportunity for relationship. And I pray for relationship with Jesus Christ for every single person who would darken the doors of this place. May it be us, Lord. In Jesus' name.